Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities, and thank you for joining us today. I am delighted to be speaking with my uh, guest today, Rahul Merotra. Rahul is an internationally recognized architect and a founding principal of RMA Architects, based both in Bombay and in Boston. The work of the firm is rich and varied. It engages architecture, urbanism, conservation, landscape. And beyond this successful practice, Raul is a notable educator and an author. He's currently the John T. Dunlop Professor in Housing and Urbanization at Harvard. In addition to being uh, the chair of the Department of Urban Planning and Design, the director of the Masters of Architecture and Urban Design, and the co-director of the Masters of Landscape Architecture and Urban Design at the GSD. And as though that were not enough, Raul has written and lectured extensively on issues relating to the architecture and urban design of India. His writings include co-authoring Bombay, The Cities Within, which covers the city's urban history from the 1600s to 1990, Banganga Sacred Tank, Bombay to Mumbai, Changing Perspectives, and most recently, he has authored two books, Working in Mumbai and The Kinetic City and Other Essays. Rahul, thank you so much for taking uh, some time out of your very busy schedule to speak with us today. Thank you, Carrie. So perhaps we can begin um, with some of your earliest experiences. You were born and you grew up in India. And I was curious to know how those early uh, childhood experiences or those early experiences may have shaped your ideas about the city. Thanks, Carrie, again for that question. Yes, I mean, really coexistence is the word that comes to mind. I mean, growing up in a city like Mumbai, you know, a city which grew from three to 12 million people, like in a decade, uh, massive expansion. Uh, you saw all sorts of people living together there. And this sort of idea of coexistence, the kind of plurality that you're exposed to in the process, I think had a big impact in the way I then later began to think about life as an architect, uh, because this was an impression of uh, experiences that very much molded one's perception of the world around one. And did you did you live in uh, sort of the dense cities or or in the more rural areas? No, absolutely in the dense part of the city in South Bombay, uh, and was kind of exposed to this metropolis sort of growing around me. In fact, mm -hmm. I would kind of quite confidently say that my generation perhaps saw. Uh, unprecedented urban transformation. And like I said, from 3 million to 12 million people is something, you know, I experienced through the 70s growing up and being in high school there. Uh, and I saw land being reclaimed. I saw the city being expanded. I saw people living on the streets, slums emerging. Uh, it all kind of happened in a literally in a decade or two. And these were the years I was growing up in the city. Actually, you um, your education as an architect and an urban designer, it really it straddles two continents because you received uh, degrees from both SEPT University and Amenabad. 
and then later graduate degrees from the Harvard Graduate School of Design, where you're currently on the faculty. And I was curious if these educations were, were they complementary or did these institutions offer completely opposing views um, or ways of seeing architecture in the city? Actually, they were very complementary. Ahmedabad, studying at SEPT in Ahmedabad, the School of Architecture there, was it was something that gave me, I think, a pretty solid foundation in architecture. And what was unique about Ahmedabad as a city was that it has the most robust, interesting, and beautiful uh, traditional quarters, right? The historic city is incredibly beautiful. But Ahmedabad was also the site of modernism in India, aside from Chandigarh, because in Ahmedabad, Louis Kahn built, Kurbu, built, and then you had an incredible generation, first generation of post-independent India architects, Charles Correa, Doshi, Kanwinde, who built there. And so studying in Ahmedabad, one was traversing on a daily basis tradition as well as contemporary cutting-edge architecture. And I think reflecting back the notion of the simultaneous validity of both these ways of imagining the world was something that was very much embedded in my own education. But besides that, while Doshi was the one and he passed away very recently, a great legacy gone and a big loss for the profession, he founded the school, but there were people like Bernard Bernard Cohn, who was a French architect, who actually was very instrumental in the syllabus. And he comes from a humanist tradition. He was interested in the works of Patrick Geddes and other humanists. And so coming to the GSD and being part of a curriculum that CERT sort of formulated, which also came from the humanist tradition, was uh, uh, was created very familiar ground. And then, of course, coming and studying urban design at the GSD at Harvard University, was expansive in that one was suddenly exposed to the urban condition, uh, another scale. And I think these two uh, sorts of educations, both in terms of the consistency of the humanist tradition, but uh, them engaging me with completely different scales uh, made it complementary. And, uh, you know, I, I feel blessed that I had this trajectory in my education. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I, I think it, it, places the seeds for what what I actually understand in researching more about your work and preparing to speak with you today, a kind of open-minded, uh, kind of global attitude towards uh, the practice of architecture and urbanism. Um, now, you spoke about a number of these key figures, and Charles Correa, arguably one of India's most important modern architects, uh, was also your father-in-law. So perhaps on a more personal note, um, what what do you believe to be the greatest lessons that he taught you? Well, I mean, I think one very important kind of large lesson was his professionalism and his sort of commitment that, uh, you know, society had invested in us as a profession to imagine better conditions in which society could play out their lives. And so with that comes the professional responsibility. And that professionalism was something that was, I think, for me, a very profound lesson, uh, working with him, listening to him and interacting with him. But I think at at another scale and in the context of the profession more largely, I mean, I would think he was really the first Asian architect. And what I mean by that is he was perhaps the first architect uh, who articulated a position for Asia, 
but by extension for the global south, in which uh, he challenged what the Western canons were in the way they were being transferred uh, to the south. And he formulated a very sharp arguments, which for us, a generation after him growing up there uh, and reading his writings and things, were very instrumental in understanding what place means and what context means and the intersection between context and culture and society in very specific terms. He had this amazing talent to abstract lessons from tradition and articulate them in ways they could be instrumentalized for designers. You know, in the 70s, when form follows function and other dictums such as that were prevalent in the conversation, you know, he wrote in the 70s a seminal piece in Architectural Review where he said form follows climate. And he made an argument that that's what roots architecture to place in society. Uh, and that was way ahead of its time. I mean, we are all talking about how we should be responding to climate to make more sustainable architecture today. So I think he, he I think for, for my generation of architects in India, he gave us the confidence to pick up the problem differently. And he gave us the confidence uh, to make society central to our imaginary about how form and architecture should be uh, situated in a place. Yeah, and as I hear you um, speak about this, I, I, perhaps it also gave you the uh, um, the ability to tap into kind of your regional traditions as opposed to, let's say, uh, you know, Kind of theories proposed by you know the leading architects of the West, and so I think it opened up other avenues. And I see that actually in both your early work and even some of the larger institutional work that you're doing now. And we will get into that um, in just a minute. But perhaps uh, before talking about sort of the particulars of the practice and a number of key projects, um, I was in, in again in in preparing for today. Uh, you've made an argument that. Um, historically, anyway, cities have largely been imagined as permanent constructions, permanent entities. Um, but you argue that this basic assumption needs to be challenged. Um, and you write about this in the Kinetic City and other essays. Um, why do you believe that this is so? You know, in the Kinetic City and other essays, the argument, and especially in the idea of the Kinetic City, the argument is really that architecture should not be imagined as the single spectacle of the city. Uh, we have, as a profession, uh, assumed that architecture is the single instrument by which a city can be organized and imagined. And the city beautiful, Vienna, many other places in Europe are great examples of this. When architecture is instrumentalized as the single instrument, you actually create severe divisions in society. You go into zoning, the rich live in big villas in one place, the poor live in shanty towns in the other place, because only architecture is used as that instrument. And so I was sort of observing in places like Mumbai and many cities in Asia, where actually the identity of the city comes from aspects that are temporal in nature, like festivals and the carnival uh, in Rio, uh, which define the image of the city much more than architecture per se, which is not to say it's a question of one or the other, but we should take seriously other spectacles, which are what you might call the soft city. The hard city is the city of architecture. The soft city is the city 
that is about people and how they occupy space, how they orchestrate events in space on a temporal, ephemeral kind of a scale. And I think my argument in the kinetic city is merely to infect the business as usual debate about cities, which is instrumentalizing architecture perhaps too much. In the context of questions of sustainability, climate change, I think what it also brings into the discussion is the notion of time. Uh, we haven't found a way in architecture and in urban planning to deal with the idea of the temporal, of time, how we imagine things in time. So therefore, we start thinking about absolute solutions and conditions and imaginary that's absolute. Whereas if we think more transitionally in terms of time, uh, we might not uh, put permanence as our central mission. We might design for shorter time periods, which will make us more nimble as a society in the way we build cities. I mean, your, you know, your response makes me think about my own travels, you know, being based in the West. And I think the West has a tradition of building in stone. And so it's really building for millennia. Um, and for instance, the first time that I visited Japan, which is really an architecture that uh, uh, built at least the traditional architecture largely built in wood that has a much shorter lifespan. You know, there was a kind of regenerative process to building that was much more cyclical than you see, let's say, in the West. So um, I think culture and building materials and how we build, I think, um, impacts what you're discussing now. And I think Maybe, you know, when you when you talk about the kinetic city, you give examples, right? You're talking right now about these almost kind of pilgrimage practices that are happening all over the globe, where um, where you have these temporal cities that are being erected. Um, and you you speak about, let's say, the Kumela. I don't know how many of our listeners might be familiar with um, the Kumela, but can you say something about um, that? Uh, sort of an extraordinary event because you say something provocative in in one of your interviews where you, you argued that it was maybe uh, India's most well organized city and in fact you know it it appears every twelve years and then disappears after ten days so can you can you share with our listeners a little bit about the Kumela? Yes, thank you. The Kumela is um, uh, a temporary city which is set up. Uh, to celebrate a Hindu festival, which happens in based on sort of the lunar, lunar cycles on four and 12 year rhythms, the 12 year rhythms being the larger form of that celebration. This is a festival that takes place physically at the confluence of the two sacred rivers, the Ganges and the Yamuna. Uh, and it's a festival that sort of lasts about five weeks uh, and uh, a whole city, a temporary city to house seven million people is set up for this. And this city is set up between October and January when the waters of these two rivers recede after the monsoon and the sandbanks emerge. So it's a very light city that sits on these sandbanks. It's constructed in six weeks. It's dismantled in a week and it lasts for five or six weeks. Uh, and uh, the Hindus believe that if you bathe at the confluence of these two rivers called the Sangam uh, on those particular days where there are planetary alignments, you're freed from rebirth. So it's a compelling idea which brings a lot of people uh, to this site. Uh, now, this city is it's built. It's it's not a pop up city. It's not an informal city, although it might look like one. But it's a formal state enterprise. It's set up on a perfect grid. It has people who run it. It has bureaucrats. It has a mayor. It has sweepers. It has 
police people. It, it, it has all the attributes of a regular city, but it's dismantled. And so at Harvard University, we carried out this research, which was put together as a book, which is called the Kummela, mapping the ephemeral megacity, because it is a megacity. It has 7 million people who live there for 55 days, uh, and it has about 100 million people roughly who visit it during the time of its existence very efficiently run. What we learned from it was two or threefold. One was that, um, you know, when you have a single purpose, like in this case, it's to celebrate Hinduism, it's the world's largest Hindu congregation. Uh, there's a single purpose, there's very little contestation, everyone wants to make it work. And they have a single purpose, which drives them to make it work. And that's, I think, important to learn, because most of the problems that reside in our cities come from these sorts of contestations and within democracies, they are even more exaggerated. The other was that it 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 has a it it has a bureaucracy that also works on a temporal scale, which means planning it, you have a hierarchy of people who are in charge. And when it hits the ground, you have another hierarchy of people who are in charge who report to very few people, which means it's very nimble in terms of its governance structure. Uh, and so it uses time, it uses temporality, it's forced to because it's an ephemeral megacity uh, in very, very productive ways. If you think about it, our cities, more than the buildings, sometimes it's the modes and the protocols of bureaucracy that are old and often redundant. They emanated 200 years ago, whether they're mayoral systems uh, and bureaucracies that come under them, which means we are not nimble with the crises that we face today with climate change. And so, Gary, to go back to your earlier question, I think the provocation in all of this for me is the question, and this is a question for all of us as society, but particularly as architects, are we often making permanent solutions for temporary problems? We've got to flip it. Our aspirations are always to make permanent solutions, but often we are making those permanent solutions for temporary problems. Look at the 2000 abandoned shopping malls in America. It's a time that's gone. Amazon's taken over. That was a temporary problem or a need. And we tried to make permanent solutions. So how could the lessons of the Kumela, for example, be applied to the adaptive reuse of, let's say, these thousands of malls that might become obsolete? What lessons could we learn from, from the Kumela or from other temporary cities that could be applied to the ad adaptation of these permanent structures that are now going to be largely abandoned? So my response to you is twofold. One is what we can learn from it is a deeper lesson, which is we have to be very mindful of the material life cycles we employ when we make buildings. We've got to force ourselves to project the redundancy that might sort of come into some of these things. And some of this can be done much lighter, correct? So that's one. But more importantly, we were always asked this question when we did this research. And so we expanded the Kummela book, the idea of the kinetic city to what we call ephemeral urbanism. Kinetic became ephemeral and city became urbanism. And we developed a whole taxonomy of the kinds of ephemeral landscapes that exist. And one of them is the landscapes of transaction, which is all the temporary markets around the world, which go on weekly, daily, you know, hourly cycles, then uh, the ephemeral landscapes for celebration, for refuge, which are refugee camps, uh, for religion, for extraction, for military. So there's a whole taxonomy. 
which have completely different protocols that are involved, right? So for example, markets, and that's why the farmer's market is gaining so much traction in the United States, is you get fresher food, you get face-to-face -face interactions and negotiations. It's much more human, and yet it doesn't occupy permanent buildings. It works on cycles, right? And now, again, it's not a matter of one or the other. We don't need to make all our cities completely temporary, but we've got to make space in our cities where other more temporal occurrences can occur. It'll make us more nimble. It'll make us more flexible. It'll make us more efficient in terms of resources, uh, and it will not lock us permanently into what might be temporary needs. You know, maybe as I listen to you respond, you know, I'm curious because in the kinetic city, you also talk about the informal city, right? Which I know is a term you don't like very much, but let's, let's just say, you know, the slums or in Latin America, the favelas, you know, and uh, I was reading that currently, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Rahul, but it seems like there's approximately 7 million people, close to 7 million people in Mumbai that, that are living in informal settlements. Um, that's probably about a third of the population. And so uh, why, why hasn't and, and I don't know if this is a fair question for you as an architect and an urban designer, but why do you think that the level of organization um, that goes into the making of the Kumela, you know, the deployment of the infrastructure and the kind of order that has to take place to be able to allow for that to occur, hasn't been applied to the to the design of the informal sector or the informal city in India? That is a very good and complicated question uh, for many reasons. First, let's look at informality. You know, the idea of the informal emanates an economy where where what was outside the tax base was called the informal economy. Uh, architects somehow slid that into urban planning in the 70s, and we called it the informal city. Uh, that was either illegal, squatting on illegal land, or squatting illegally on land, etc. So it was outside the state's control, so to speak, of the city. Right Now, planning without the state's patronage is a redundant term. It's a redundant idea, right? And partly the informal city city doesn't appear on the state's plans, on development plans. Now they're beginning to accept it because it's become such a reality, but they never did. So therefore, no patronage. And when you don't have the security of land tenure, people don't help themselves either because they live in uncertainty. Now, having said all of that, uh, because your question also implied what might be the solution. And again, here, I think we have to think more temporally about this. So they can be a short-term solution. And we can say, look, there are kids living there who have no access to sanitation. So we should sort of intervene, put in community toilets, improve the sanitation. These are all short-term kinds of improvements. Maybe those slums as uh, or informal settlements, uh, as in the case of Medellin in Colombia, evolve and get integrated in the city. And there the state integrated them in the city through mobility systems. They put in a cable car that connected them to the transportation systems. So that's then about integration. And integration is an idea that's taking more traction among many governments around the world, right? The other way to look at it is on a long durée, because I would say the 
the solutions to the slum or the informal settlement called Dharavi in Mumbai, which is considered to be Asia's biggest informal settlement, doesn't lie in Dharavi. It lies in the way we can imagine the larger metropolitan region of Mumbai, create other opportunities for affordable or adequate housing and how that's connected with mobility. In planning, there's a holy trinity. It is it is dwelling. I'm not using housing. It's dwelling, how people live. It's livelihoods where people earn and its mobility that connects the two. The shop house was the best example where mobility collapsed into one flight of stairs. But as our cities expand, you have to subsidize mobility to create a connection between livelihoods and dwelling. And so therefore, the metropolitan region is where we'll finally find these solutions. And it's a mistake that we keep looking at slums to see how we can improve them. Yes, we can upgrade them. We can even integrate them if the state has patronage. But finally, how we imagine the metropolitan region, the city as an ecology is extremely critical. Yeah, I think you raise a really um, important point because it's not only um, an urban problem, you know, a lot of it lies in the fact that the kind of rural landscapes of many of these cities have have been abandoned, have failed, right? And so people are arriving to these cities, Bombay and others, in mass quantities. The cities cannot support that. So in thinking about, you know, the kind of challenge of informality in these dense urban environments, we also have to ask ourselves, how can we better address the larger picture, which includes the rural um, and so uh, I think it, I think what you're arguing for is a more holistic vision for how to potentially solve this. But in your answer also, you spoke about, um, you know, as an architect or as an urban designer, um, I, I think one of the most profound ways to uh, integrate the informal is perhaps to think about infrastructure first and foremost. You talked about toilets, you talk about uh, infrastructural projects, you know, which really address some of the most paramount needs, which which really is about sanitation. So um, we're really coming up to a, a break. And, and I think, you know, um, your answers to the questions have been um, very provocative and at, at least are giving me a lot to think about. But when we return, I would like to um, perhaps shift to speak uh, more specifically about uh, your, your own practice and how uh, through your work, you are actually... Um, uh, addressing many of the challenges facing not only uh, the Indian city, but really the global city. So we're going to take uh, just a few minutes, a short break, and please uh, come back and join us when Rahul will uh, describe a little bit about um, the projects that he has been engaging in for more than two decades. Thank you. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod, examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, 
embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. We're continuing our conversation with um, architect and educator Rahul Merotra. And before the break, um, Rahul was sharing with us his ideas about uh, the kinetic city and that cities have a kind of temporal dimension, um, which is not uh, permanent, um, but that we can learn a lot from. Uh, and now I, and, and we were applying that to a conversation about um, the Indian city and questions of informality, which certainly are beyond India and influencing much of the urban design of our cities today. But I was, um, I was curious, um, or, or I would like to delve into your own work as a practitioner, because you really pursue a life that is equally about practice and teaching. Um, and your work is wonderfully eclectic and, and varied, um, varied in scale and scope and location, you know, from uh, initially small interiors and small houses to now institutional buildings, um, but also uh, reconstruction of landscapes and, you know, even conservation work. I mean, I know that you were, um, I believe, responsible for putting a team together that would set the construct for the restoration of the Taj Mahal, probably one of India's most, certainly most recognizable historical um, uh, sites. But um, do you think that this attitude, and I think you alluded to this earlier in your education, but it seems like you're able to embrace all of this variety because of your belief uh, that architecture is valid or has different valid modes of practice. Um, there's not just one way to practice. So can you can you describe what you mean by this? Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, we are educated to think about our role in a very singular way. Uh, we are trained uh, in tenants that are about uh, someone approaching us 
to solve a problem, albeit an architectural problem, uh, and us setting up a set of protocols, which means we make concept drawings, which become working drawings, which are given to contractors, and then someone produces it, right? That's one set of protocols, and that's one model of practice. Uh, but uh, in a place like India, I began to observe there were many ways of doing it, and they were architects who already set the precedent. There was a wonderful English architect, Laurie Baker, who worked actively in India. And he uh, worked directly with craftspeople. He gave them two little sketches and he let crafts, craft people innovate the details. And the protocol there was different. It was a direct means of communication. And then I saw temples being made in India where there were no drawings or even instructions. These were hereditary traditions that people carried on and wonderful temples were yet being built. And it made me think that maybe we are marginalized as a profession uh, in, in society because we are actually engaging with about 5% of society that wants the kind of buildings we build through the protocols within the political economy of a particular kind that exists with, with societies aspiring to be capitalists sort of in their ideological stance. And we were marginal. And so then I we began to actually broaden our own engagements and practice uh, understanding two things. One is that different modes or different kinds of buildings, conservation of historic buildings at one end of the spectrum and interior renovations at the other end of the spectrum have completely different temporal scales. And if you understand that temporal scale and that temporality, then you can begin to shift within that framework to different modes of, of practice and engagement. And those protocols differ very much. Uh, the protocols at one end where very specific, detailed instructions are communicated to someone else who builds versus looser, uh, looser frameworks that you co-evolve with people who actually make those buildings. And so our practice has gone ahead to kind of embrace that spectrum, uh, which is very exciting. Uh, and it allows us to engage with many more aspects of the built environment than we would have traditionally if we stayed with a narrow set of protocols and engaged only with that. So can you elaborate for our listeners um, or, or perhaps provide an example of what of a project that engaged these sort of looser, less defined protocols? Um, so uh, actually in conservation work, it, it happens most naturally uh, because you often have very skilled craftspeople who can reconstruct uh, ornate column made in lime plaster, let's say. Uh, so uh, as an architect, what you do is you maybe uh, go and map uh, an existing column, which they might be able to replicate. You make a set of loose drawings, uh, sketches sometimes, and not dimension drawings, because even the communication gap, literacy, and all of that uh, is an uh, issue to deal with. Uh, and then you begin to depend on these crafts folks who know their craft so well uh, that they'll put it all back in a way that uh, the most detailed working drawings wouldn't have got you there, for example, right? And they have different modes of measurements of, of, of constructing arcs or constructing, uh, the, you know, uh, decorative elements and stencils for those, which they have their own protocols for. So in conservation, it plays out the, the easiest. In housing and housing for, say, 
especially lower income societies where you uh, have a limited set of resources, then you have to think more in terms of the building as an armature where you put together a framework which allows people to infill. Uh, and that's the kind of confidence you have, you have to have in the final users who would do it. And you can guide them along the way through sometime oral communication and not even drawings. And you have to hope that it you know lands up in the best sort of direction. Now, I mean, I think from that learning also comes attachment and detachment, right? Uh, where you let go. Uh, and, and and so the architect can also be a facilitator. Architecture doesn't have to always be obsessed about absolute solutions with every detail in place like you had imagined it. Architecture sometimes can facilitate and you get a kind of transitional thinking. It might not give you the best sorts of images uh, for the buildings because they might be clumsinesses inherent aesthetically, but it's a it's a valid mode of practice. And if we have to affect the built environment at a scale, uh, I think we've got to oscillate between the specificity that we are obsessed with as architects, uh, but the looseness that allows and facilitates others to participate in the building process. Yeah, I think you say um, a lot about the importance um, and the inherent value and wisdom that comes in craft you know, and craftspeople. And I can say from my own experience that I've only come across that level of synergies um, in Latin America when I've worked, you know, we I have a practice that's based in Latin America in Miami. And when we practice in Latin America, there's a very different relationship in building um, that occurs in the U.S. I find that in the U.S., um, Again, it's an extraordinary place to practice, but it's quite different um, because the protocols of building oftentimes don't allow for the kind of uh, integration of craft or it's not quite as nimble. I think we're a heavily litigious society. And so, you know, our drawings mandate, you know, a kind of level of prescription that oftentimes doesn't allow for the craftsperson to weigh in. So I'm curious about how you know, the Indian contents or the Latin American context that still um, kind of prides itself in the use of craft can maybe influence some of our processes in the U.S. It'd be interesting to think about them. So craft in the societies you describe and India, Latin America, Africa are more continuous uh, in uh, in the West, two world wars decimated crafts beyond repair, uh, and we had uh, an aesthetic modernity that emerged, right? And this is also an important question because in Latin America, India, South Asia, most of Asia and Africa, Aesthetic modernity appeared on that landscape before the social modernization project. And there's always been a disjuncture, right? And therefore, the protocols that we use for modern architecture in the way we imagine it is quite different from how people otherwise produce in societies. And I think all of us working in these parts of the world, the challenge is how do you bring that synthesis? And from that comes a richness, which is quite incredible. Yeah, agreed. Actually, um, I mean, there you have so many different types of projects. It's formidable. Um, but you have several projects actually that are, you know, addressing maybe sectors of societies that architects typically do not serve. Um, for example, you have projects for um, the campus for magic bus um, or community toilets uh, for Spark. Um, and again, projects that serve this broader sector of society. How did you become engaged in these projects and how are you able to sustain them in your practice? 
You know, that is a really interesting question. And I think this is something that resonates across the profession, because if you if you choose, okay, let me step back and say this, that finally for me, uh, you know, a society is judged by how it treats its poor anywhere in the world. Uh, it, of course, leads to questions of equity and all of that. But we've got to, as architects, be much, much more mindful about this. And I think one way we can make this viable is through the notion of cross-subsidy, right? We do projects that you know, give us an income and sustain our practices? And can we from that share a bit of that cross-subsidizing of other projects? And like the community toilets, for example, these were projects that we didn't have a client. We initiated it with an NGO who were building toilets based on a World Bank kind of uh, funding model. Uh, they weren't bringing design to it. And so we put our services in as a contribution to that process uh, to change the conversation in a sense. And this, so our practice is very much structured to cross-subsidize some of this work from the other work that gives us some kind of profit. And a lot of these projects come through a kind of self-initiated mode where we see something happening and we are unsettled or upset or not comfortable with the way things are going. And we feel and are committed to the fact that design can bring some value to it. So we approach NGOs. And that's how many of these sort of projects have happened. The Magic Bus was a project that an NGO actually approached us to do, uh, which is it's an organization that cre has created a campus where children from the slums or the informal city are taken for educational programs. And what we did here was we limited our palette of materials to the materials that the informal city is made from, abandoned corrugated sheets or planks of wood from crates or, you know, the material like that, to create a kind of familiarity with the agenda that if the kids who are in their teens saw the same materials being used in more sophisticated ways, maybe when they repaired their own homes, they might do things differently. And so these you know, their aspirations. I mean, we all as architects bring idealism to everything we do now. If that idealism goes somewhere, we are lucky if it doesn't. But we yet should be committed to that idealism because that's what will change the world or change societies we work in. Yeah, I think your response is also reveals a kind of degree of um, versatility and uh, entrepreneurship. Um, I, I just know that this generation of students studying architecture and design today, they really, they're looking also um, at, at their work through the lens of advocacy, you know, and also I think they're trying to figure out how to expand the reach of architecture beyond, let's say, the conventional clients um, that it might be associated with. But the reality is that it's not easy to monetize as, as a designer um, to monetize this work. Um, oftentimes you have to do what you're suggesting, right? You have to subsidize that work uh, from other work. Um, and that in the long term, uh, it may not be as sustainable for many. Um, or, or I've seen other models where um, young designers are looking at the possibility of establishing themselves as non-for-profits <laughs> and then going after, you know, different ways to um, acquire monies to be able to move into these kind of broader sectors of society. So I think it's a lot to think about um, in terms of the future of architecture and its reach. Um, but I, I also think that in again in in looking at your work you 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 seem to start with a program but you instantly expand it beyond what maybe you've been asked to do for example there is a project um and i hope i'm pronouncing this correctly hathagoan housing the elephant village 
where, um, you know, of course you have these extraordinary constructions, you know, where you see an elephant in an interior, which completely changes your scale looking out this window. But really, when you start to delve into the project, you realize that you spent most of your time trying to reconstruct a, a, a sort of decimated landscape. So the project was first and foremost about landscape, and then secondly, about a kind of building program to house this elephant village. Um, do you always do that in your work? Or or maybe you could say something specifically about that project. So I'm going to expand what your last point was about patronage. And I think that's very important what you articulated there, Carrie, because patronage and finding new forms of patronage is as much our responsibility. Otherwise, we are passive about the patronage we expect. We can construct patronage. And I think that's what you were alluding to when you talked about the younger generation. And for me, the Hathi Gao project, which is really a project where it was a competition we won that the state government of Rajasthan in India, the state of Rajasthan had sort of floated. And it was really to house 100 elephants and their keepers who are called mahouts. Uh, and uh, the elephants are now in the service of the tourism industry. And this is a very controversial project because animal rights activists thought they should be just left loose in the forest and they shouldn't be even kept in captivity. Uh, but the livelihoods of the mahouts are linked to the elephants. These elephants might not themselves survive in the wilderness. And so the question was, how do you make this transitionary solution uh, to, uh, to, to make them survive? And so it became a landscape project because in the desert of Rajasthan, where there's very little rainfall, the idea was, how does one create an ecology uh, which uh, contains water where elephants can bathe? It has the green which attracts birds and it creates a kind of mini ecology in these 15 acres, which was a real challenge. And so that was really the heart of the project. But more importantly, and connected to your question of patronage, what I learned the, the, the most from this project was really patronage and the notion that how, you know, as architects, we look at the client as a singular and a simplistic entity. And this is part of the problem. I mean, every client has within it embedded many constituencies and clients. And so let me say for simplicity, you have a patron client, a client who has the you know, the, the, the money uh, and the vision, perhaps. Uh, and then you have an operational client, the client that makes things happen on the ground. And then you have the user client that is as important. So in the case of this elephant housing project, the state government was the patron client. The public works department with the operational client and the user client with the elephants and their users and their mahouts, their keepers, who earn very little. They earn five or seven thousand rupees, which is like a hundred dollars a month. So they are among the poorest in that society who have no access to the patron client, who have no access even to the public works department. And I found that we as architects were the only ones that could traverse all three sets of clients and constituencies. And those feedback loops, that conversation is what actually made the project happen. And then when I look at many other projects we've done, I realize all the problems we ran into was because 
those components of the client never communicated adequately, whether it was the user. So you designed it for the president of the university who had their own vision without keeping the faculty and students in mind, or the campus engineer or architect called the shots because of cost, and you did something quite banal, which didn't meet the aspirations of the patron client or the functions for the users. So I think it's contingent upon us, which is what a lot of my practice in India, especially this project you allude to, has taught me, is patronage is something we have to engage with and take more seriously. It's not about going after clients, but it's about understanding the resources and the needs and who in society needs those and how can we mobilize that and bring to it the value that architecture can give it. Yeah, and I think that those um, that might be listening that are, let's say, studying architecture or interested in design, or um, I think it's important to hear you as a designer and an educator talk about these invisible networks that you have to become not only knowledgeable, but also savvy and entrepreneurial, because you know, otherwise um, you won't be able to construct the work that you might want to do or work for the institutions you might want to work for or advocate for the people you might want to advocate for if you don't understand how to set up those structures accordingly. So I think you you bring up a very important point. Um, you know, in addition to, and I, I think we can keep talking about your, your various projects. I mean, you've also done large-scale institutional work. Um, and, you know, I, 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 uh, I see in the work a kind of exploration of uh, both universal, but also regional uh, traditions that are, 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 are kind of working to merge. And so I, I, could, I could talk about them at length, but given the fact that we're probably in the last five minutes or so of the uh, conversation, I wanted to touch upon your role as the chair of the urban planning program at Harvard, because in essence, you are instructing the next generation of urban design leaders um, to address the challenges of the 21st century and, and maybe to hopefully make an impact. So how have you kind of structured the curriculum or with your faculty structured that curriculum to try to address those challenges? Well, twofold. One is that, you know, ours is a studio-based pedagogy, which is interesting that even for urban planning and urban design, we use the studio, which means we use real problems, which 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 means you're talking about synthesis, which means you're actually taking a real problem, uh, understanding the forces that act upon it and trying to find solutions, but very much concerned with the built environment where uh, we really believe space matters and how space is articulated, whether you're a planner or an urban designer or an architect or landscape architect makes a big difference. And so we uh, we have been aspiring to and trying very hard uh, to slide between uh, you know the 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 silos, so to speak, of what is traditionally called urban planning and what is urban design and architecture, and and, and situating the pedagogy and the curriculum in a way that students are comfortable in all of these spaces because going into the future, given the complexity of problems that we have to address for society as professionals, uh, collaborations are going to be very important. And to understand the culture of each of these disciplines is critical to beginning to set up those conversations. Right. Excellent. So what are you working on right now, Rahul? Is there a project that particularly um, excites you or, or are you working on a new book? Um, 
Well, the project that I'm finishing is a new book on India, on urbanization in India. I'm working with a colleague, Saurav Bishwas, on it. It's called Becoming Urban, and it's trying to project what India's urbanization trajectory is. Uh, it'll be in the form of a book, which will be done by, hope, the end of this year. And the other project, which I'm very excited about, is a project I've set up at the university, which is looking at... Uh, emergent architects under 40 in South Asia, which is Bhutan, India, Nepal, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and Afghanistan. Uh, and we have this as a platform every Saturday, uh, and we're trying to put to the, to this together again as a research project, which is trying to understand what are the emergent conditions in South Asia, what it means for young architects, and what are the different models of practice that people are engaging with. And it's absolutely fascinating what you just sort of uh, you know articulated very well, Carrie, about being making visible uh, uh, you know, the needs, but also the forms of patronage and constituencies. It's, it's emerging so beautifully in these conversations and a whole generation is doing just that. Uh, and we're just trying to make it a little more visible. And I'm very excited about that project because it also becomes a platform for another generation. For those that might be interested, is that how, how can one connect to those conversations? Uh, these conversations are uh, they're online. They're Saturday mornings. If you go to the LMSAI, which is the Lakshmi Mittal South Asia Institute website at Harvard University, these are announced uh, in advance and you can register and join us. It's open to anyone. Great. Well, we have about two more minutes, um, so maybe in a minute or so. <laughs> uh, I'm asking all the guests to tell me what their favorite city is and why. And so I'm curious, what's your favorite city, Rahul? I assume you mean in India or anywhere? Oh, it could be anywhere. And it doesn't necessarily just have to be one. Sometimes it's... Well, it's, I mean, I, I, there, there are two cities that come to mind right away. One is Mumbai, of course, because that's home. And going back to Charles Correa, he described Mumbai as a great city, but a terrible place. And, you know, that's the dichotomy that one deals with there. It's the greatest city I know, but it really is a mess. And that's what's exciting for me as an architect to make it better. But a city where I relax completely is Lisbon, because Lisbon is a great city and a great place, great food, great music, walkable uh, and wonderful. Well, thank you, Raul. Thank you for the work that you do, uh, for the breadth of your work, both as an educator and as a practitioner. Um, it's, uh, it's, I think, uh, formidable and you do it with uh, grace. And so, again, thank you for joining uh, me today. Uh, I just, if if you found the conversation interesting, which I certainly hope you did, please uh, check us out on On Cities podcast, follow us, and make sure to tune in next week where uh, we will be joined by sociologist Alejandro Portes, who um, has written extensively on global cities and uh, will be speaking about the rise of global cities like Miami um, and the phenomena of the global city. So thank you for joining us and we'll see you next week. Thanks again, Rahul. Thank you, Carrie. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week 